Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. A warm welcome to First Move. Fantastic to have you with us for a special Animal Kingdom start of the program today on the First Move Farm this Tuesday, Fox. All systems go for the start of the Fox News Dominion defamation trial in the U.S. state of Delaware. Jury selection set to begin today as talks of a last-minute settlement recede. Lion, Chinese GDP roaring back in the first quarter, up a better-than-expected 4.5% amid strong consumer spending. But a bit of weakness behind the main number, we'll explain. Also, Bees. Consumers making a beeline for Apple's first physical store in India. The tech world buzzing over Apple's new high-yield savings account, too. Will it be a sting at the bottom line of some of the bigger banks? Dan Ives of Wetbush Securities will be here to discuss it all. And, of course, dog in bank earnings today. A rough Q1 for Goldman Sachs, but fetching results from Bank of America. Yes, that's Romeo. Goldman Sachs set to fall some 3% after missing on revenues. Deal making, actually, and bond trading were sore spots. Bank of America, meanwhile, higher pre-market after posting a strong set of results, even as it announced $20 billion in deposit outflows. And they're not the only one. According to the FT, Charles Schwab, State Street and M&T Bank have seen customers pull a total of $60 billion in deposits, tempted by higher interest rates from money market funds and other financial products. That's probably okay for the bigger banks, less so, of course, for the smaller ones, as we've long been discussing, because, of course, lending and profits will be squeezed at some of those smaller banks as a result. So that's something certainly we'll continue to watch. All this, plus slow growth fears and sticky inflation, suggest a continued battle between Wall Street bulls and bears. But it is, as you can see, a mostly higher U.S. open on tap after Monday's leopard leap forward. Europe higher, too, after a spotty Asian handover. I'm stopping now. But the lion's share of our attention today does begin in China, with China posting growth, as I mentioned, a 4.5% in the first quarter. That's compared to data from a year ago, driven by strong consumer spending. The solid rebound comes after Beijing ended its zero-COVID policy back in December. And Ivan Watson joins us now. Ivan, plenty of speculation that China could, if they continue in this manner, exceed their 5% growth target for this year. The question is, is it sustainable? What do you make of the numbers? Yeah, I mean, they are uh, being welcomed, I think. Uh, The 4.5% GDP growth rate uh, in the first quarter of this year, uh, better than what many analysts had predicted. Uh, And what happens in the world's second largest economy uh, affects the rest of us around the world. So so this is welcome news to many. But I think there are a number of uh, statistics that were published today by the Chinese government that, that indicate that this is kind of an unequal, unequal recovery that China is experiencing after uh, the end of its, of its COVID restrictions. For example, uh, the, the growth was driven very much by what 
experts are describing as a spending spree, consumer spending, which shot up in March some 10.6% retail sales. I mean, that's big. Uh, And it just shows that there was probably a lot of pent-up demand and uh, a fair amount of consumer confidence as well. But then look at this final figure here of the youth unemployment for March. Uh, 19.6%, the second highest number ever uh, recorded, which suggests some big problems on the horizon there. So the International Monetary Fund, it is saying that China is rebounding strongly. It is predicting 5.2% growth for China for this year. And certainly what we're seeing so far is an improvement from last year, where I think the the GDP grew at only about 3% for the entire year. And just to give you some context, think back to April of last year, at the height of the COVID lockdown, the city of Shanghai, with a population of 25 million people, sold zero cars, according to uh, automobile sales associations there. So that you have a tremendous amount of pent-up demand that is now being unleashed. Uh, the statisticians from the Chinese government, they are some of the ones that are warning, however, that there are some problems in the economy. Take a listen uh, to what the spokesman had to say. But we must also see that the international environment is still complex. There are uncertainties in the growth of external demand. Constraints brought by the lack of domestic market demand still exist. And the price of industrial products is still falling. So what are these complexities? Again, youth unemployment at a very high level, 19.6%. Come June, uh, estimates that you'll have close to 12 million new graduates from universities who are going to be out in the job market looking for jobs. And another indicator of what the challenges are, you've got a state uh, government-run investment up more than 10% this month uh, from uh, last year, and then private investment up an anemic 0.6%, suggesting there is there are some real confidence problems in the entrepreneurial class, possibly driven by the government's crackdowns on the financial and tech industries over the course of the last year. Yeah, so many great points in there, Ivan. Thank you. Uh, the beauty and the challenge of a controlled economy. And we're always a little bit cautious of how far we can um, perhaps trust and, and focus on some of this data. But when the Chinese government themselves are admitting one in five young people are unemployed, you know you have a challenge. Um, great to have you with us. Thank you so much for that. Okay, here in the United States, the FBI has arrested two Chinese Americans for allegedly running a secret police station in New York's Chinatown. U.S. prosecutors have also charged dozens of others with working to silence Chinese dissidents. Paula Reed joins us on this. Uh, Paula, the movie script on this one writes itself. What more do we know and how is this discovered? It does. It's something right out of a spy novel. And the Justice Department says these cases are indicative of China's expanded espionage efforts here on U.S. soil. Now, three separate cases here. The first, as you mentioned, two men, U.S. citizens, were charged with running a secret police station here in the U.S. in Chinatown, where they tried to identify, track and harass dissidents. In a separate case, the U.S. government charged dozens of officials connected to China's national security 
operations with also harassing dissidents. In this case, they alleged that they were building social media profiles, in some cases posing as average Americans weighing in on anything from foreign policy to George Floyd. But these accounts would not only promote the People's Republic of China, but also attack adversaries in some circumstances, issuing death threats that successfully dissuaded some people from attending pro-democracy demonstrations. And then there's yet another example where the Justice Department has charged several people, including CNN has learned an executive at Zoom, for interrupting and disrupting calls, trying to be arranged by dissidents, including one meeting to discuss commemorating the massacre at Tiananmen Square. Now, that Zoom executive was previously charged, but in this latest round, they charge nine additional people. And the Justice Department says all of this just goes beyond the bounds of the standard nation-state conduct. Yeah, because it's taking place here, of course. I mean, for for some balance here, China, the China's foreign ministry has uh, dismissed the reports as a political manipulation, which I, I think perhaps you would expect on this point. What happens now, Paula? It'll be really interesting to see if they're a- able to bring anyone who's not already here and hasn't been arrested to justice. And the Justice Department has often faced questions about whether when they charge people connected to a state-sponsored organization in China or other countries, uh, what it all means. Is it just symbolic? Will they ever see the inside of a courtroom? And the Justice Department says, look, they're playing the long game here, and this is meant to deter this kind of behavior in the future. They believe that people here should enjoy the freedoms that they enjoy. And not be subject to this kind of harassment and, again, some threats. Paula, great to have you with us. Paula Reed there. Thank you. Okay, to Sudan now, where days of violence between two warring generals have left at least 180 people dead and 1,800 injured. One explosion captured live on TV sent smoke billowing into the sky over Khartoum. The Sudanese army forces have issued conflicting statements about a possible 24-hour ceasefire to go into effect later on Tuesday. The bombardment has destroyed civilian planes at the international airport. Nema Abagir is following events for us once again. Nema, great to have you with us. Conflicting reports about whether or not the armed forces will adhere to this hoped-for ceasefire. What more can you tell us? Well, Julia, after we began to get those conflicting um, statements from the armed forces, the fighting intensified. It it, it, um, absolutely ramped up. Those we were speaking to, it was so strong that I could hear the thuds coming through their walls. It's just absolutely appalling. And these people are trapped inside their homes. If they were to leave, there would be no way for them to get any kind of medical care. And we were able to speak to doctors on the ground in Sudan to give a picture of what it's like to be targeted for attempting to save lives. Take a look at this. Sudan's military with a show of strength over the capital, Khartoum. As birdsong and artillery fire echo. This country, roiled in recent years by conflict and coups, is once again the plaything of strongmen and what the military is calling an attempted coup. Abdel Fattah al Burhan, Sudan's military's leader, is fighting for dominance with Mohammed Hamdan Degelu, known as Hemeti, who leads the paramilitary rapid support forces which gained notoriety in the western Darfur region. And it is the most vulnerable who are paying the price. Two doctors' organizations say that in Khartoum, both sides have hit hospitals in the fighting, at least half a dozen, though both sides deny it. 
CNN obtained eyewitness accounts from doctors on the ground who told CNN that the paramilitary rapid support force directly targeted a hospital where wounded armed forces soldiers and their families were being treated, including one doctor who says she witnessed the RSF approach Al Ma'alim Hospital in central Khartoum. I have to be strong enough to speak to you. You're the one that's going to tell the world what's happening to us. The evacuation was chaos. We were running, as soldiers were shouting, run, and then someone else would yell, stop, it's not safe. But what choice did we have? Three separate doctors there described to us coming under intense bombardment. The country's central committee of doctors tells CNN that with no doctors to tend them, the dead and injured are left to rot in their beds. And the Sudan Doctors Trade Union called the targeting of hospitals and the housing of military personnel there a clear breach of international humanitarian law, a charge both sides deny. Both military leaders now fighting for control were key allies in subverting the country's nascent democracy after the popular uprising in 2019, which deposed Sudan's longtime dictator, Omar al-Bashir, who now languishes in prison. The memories of those protests and the symbolic photo that became its emblem are slowly fading, as has the promised transition from military to democratic civilian rule. Hello, assalamu alaikum, al-Rais. But in an interview with CNN from inside Army HQ, the leader of Sudan's military tells me that the RSF militia is staging an attempted coup. I asked him why the Sudanese people should trust him, given his previous partnership with Commander Degen. General Burhan also committed to a return to civilian war. The leader of the Rapid Support Forces also told CNN this weekend that he wanted to ensure democratic rule. I don't want to be the leader of the army. There's a framework agreement between all the Sudanese stakeholders that should be adhered to. I don't want to lead anything. Neither general could tell us when the people of Sudan could expect this deadly fight to end. While many languish without water, food, electricity and no way to bury their dead. You could hear, Julia, the way that that doctor's voice was cracking, the fear in her voice. And that is the fear that is gripping people across Sudan's capital and across much of the country as news emerges via the, the Sudanese armed forces statements that they are seeking reinforcements from garrisons outside the capital. So this is only going to get worse in the coming days. Julia? I think you were asking the right question there. Are you really fighting for the people and for peace mm. or for power? Nema, great to have you with us. Thank you so much for that. Thank you. Okay, to Russia now. A court has rejected American journalist Evan Gershkovich's appeal against his pre-trial detention. The U.S. ambassador to Russia strongly criticizing the decision. I was able to meet Evan yesterday at Lafort of a prison. It was the first time we were granted consular access since his wrongful detention more than two weeks ago. I can report that he is in good health and remains strong despite his circumstances. The charges against Evan are baseless 
and we call on the Russian Federation to immediately release him. Matthew Chance joins us now. Matthew, I guess no surprise that this appeal was rejected given where he is and what he's uh, accused of. What did you make of the first glimpse of him? He looked tired, but he seemed to be positive, smiling for reporters. And, and what next? Yeah, I mean, it, you're right. It's the first glimpse that we've, we've had of Evan Gershkovich in several weeks, uh, certainly the first proper glimpse since he was detained at the end of March and charged with uh, with espionage. He, he, he didn't, he, you're right, he did look very relaxed, didn't he, there, but obviously he faces a, a, an enormous ordeal in front of him. The espionage charges, if he's found guilty, um, carry a maximum sentence of 20 years in prison. Um, and he's currently being held at the Fortovo uh, complex in central Moscow, which is a notorious holding facility. And, and that's what this appeal was about. It was about trying to get him out of the Fortovo. Uh, and so what his defence team offered is bail of 50 million rubles, which is about 600 or so thousand US dollars, or possibly having his uh, detention reduced to house arrest. Both of those options uh, were rejected uh, by the Russian court, the court in Moscow. And so Evan Gershkovich, this, uh, this US reporter, uh, will continue to wait things out in uh, the Fortovo prison in, in Moscow, Julia. And, and how long is that in terms of waiting it out? How long before actually we could perhaps see this come to trial or, of course, the negotiations, I'm sure, behind the scenes um, to try and free him progress? Well, you're right. He's, he's been uh, designated as uh, unlawfully detained or wrongfully detained uh, in the United States, which, which opens up a, a whole channel of uh, negotiations with the Russian authorities from, from the US point of view to try and secure his release. Now, he's been remanded until uh, the end of May, um, and that's when it's expected his, his trial may begin, although it can be pushed back further if the, the prosecutors feel that they need more time to assemble uh, the, uh, the evidence against him. Evidence, by the way, that, that hasn't been made uh, public. Um, and the Russians have made it quite clear that they will not even countenance the idea of a prisoner swap, for instance, or, or of Evan Gershkovich being released until the, the trial process has reached an end. You know, they're, they're basically not going to trade him until um, he's been found guilty or, or indeed isn't of, um, of the espionage charges against him. Mm. Matthew, great to have you with us. Thank you so much for that. Matthew Chance there. Meanwhile, Russian President Vladimir Putin making a rare visit to southern Ukraine, the Kremlin saying. He met with Russian troops at a military base in the Kherson region. His trip comes at a critical stage in the war, with Ukraine expected to launch a spring offensive. OK, so to come here on First Move, court is finally in session for the historic Fox News defamation trial. We'll discuss what will happen and who we might see after this. Welcome back to First Move. After a one-day delay, Fox News' defamation trial began just a few moments ago. Opening statements were originally due to be heard Monday, but at the weekend, the judge pushed back the start without giving an explanation. Dominion Voting Systems accuses Fox of knowingly airing false claims about Dominion's voting machines after Donald Trump lost the 2020 election. Fox, for their part, is denying any wrongdoing, saying the U.S. Constitution protects the right to free speech. 
Dominion is suing for $1.6 billion in damages. Danny Friedman Freeman joins us now. Danny, I'll get the name right eventually. Um, yesterday on the show, we were discussing perhaps the prospect of a settlement preventing this trial from going ahead. It does look like it is now, though. I read this morning that Dominion is dropping claims of lost profit damages, but still is asking for $1.6 billion. Can you help us understand what's going on? Because this number is big. Yeah, my pleasure, Julia, and good morning. What I'll say is that, remember, that $1.6 billion, that was always the figure that Dominion was asking for. Uh, that was always the big battle they were hoping to seek in this defamation case. But part of that has been $600 million in lost contracts or lost profits, and the billion dollars was always for loss of reputational damage. Well, we were able to confirm over the weekend through court filings that Dominion is actually dropping the argument that it lost $600 million due to lost profits and contracts, but they're still maintaining at this point that they are seeking $1.6 million in damages. So we're hopefully going to get a preview this today, rather, I should say, in opening statements as to how exactly they plan on justifying that if they're going to stick with the reputational damage uh, claim basically for that entire sum of money. But I should say Fox still says that all of that, all of that uh, sum of money that Dominion is proposing, that is inflated. They don't agree with, you know, even getting to a billion, let alone 1.6. So that's going to be one of the interesting parts of this case is that we hope to see unfold not only today in opening statements that should happen after jury selection, which just began, as you said, a few moments ago. And of course, as this trial goes, remember, we should be expecting this trial to last maybe as long as six weeks. So there's plenty of time to get into those specifics of that damages. And I should say jury selection, of course, this morning is so important because the jury will ultimately be responsible for determining if those damages of $1.6 billion is appropriate in this case. Julia? Yeah, yeah it's such a great point. I mean, $1.6 billion is a lot of money, but you've got to win first before we even before we even get to that point. Um, do we have any sense of timing on when we'll likely hear from some of the anchors, perhaps from Rupert Murdoch himself? Because I think this is when it's really going to get interesting. <laughs> Yeah, that's a good question, Julia. Listen, at this point, all we know is that opening statements should be beginning today. And our sources tell us that that should take up the bulk of the day. So you probably wouldn't expect to see any of these high-profile witnesses that you're talking about today. But again, Dominion has put on their list of potential witnesses Rupert Murdoch, the chairman of the Fox Corporation, Suzanne Scott, president and CEO of Fox as well. And then some of the high-profile television personalities that we all know, Sean Hannity, Tucker Carlson, Lauren Ingram, they are all on the list to potentially be called. But I should say, Julie, it's interesting. We saw yesterday. So I, I should say we're standing right now outside of the Wilmington courthouse. This is the front and there's a lot of media here. You can't enter this courthouse without the entire media eyes of the world seeing you walk in. However, we saw yesterday in the back of the courthouse for some high profile or sensitive witnesses. Sometimes they set up a tent specifically where these type of witnesses can come in and enter into the court basically out of the public eye. Well, that is out there. So the question now is, will we actually see some of those high profile folks, if they are called to the witness stand, actually walk through these front doors behind me? Julia? Yeah, perhaps not. Danny, great to have you with us. Thank you. Danny Freeman there. Got it right second time. Okay, and on to another mega media battle with political implications. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, a potential U.S. presidential candidate, still fuming over Disney's move to protect its economic autonomy at Walt Disney World. Well, DeSantis says Disney is taking his state for a ride. And on Monday, discussed an array of possible ways to get back at the company. Take a listen. Come to think of it, now people are like, well, there's, what should we do with this land? And so, you know, it's like, okay, kids, I mean, people have said, 
you know, maybe maybe have a, another, uh, maybe create a state park, maybe try to do more amusement uh, parks. Uh, someone even said, like, maybe you need another state prison. Who knows? I mean, I just think that the, the possibilities are, 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 are endless. Steve Contorno joins us now from St. Petersburg, Florida. Steve, good to have you with us. Um, was he joking? Let's be clear. Or, or do you think that was a veiled threat? <laughs> You know, it's hard to tell with with Governor DeSantis, Julia, because when you go, he's constantly throwing out these ideas that seem like they're like he's just floating them as trial balloons. And then suddenly they happen. He did that with those flights that took uh, uh, immigrants from the border to Martha's Vineyard that became an international story that started as as a joke line in uh, in some of his speeches. And then suddenly down the road, uh, he was taking those actions. So. While, while clearly it was it was sort of seen as a, a veiled threat, the governor did lay out a number of concrete things he intends to do in the coming weeks to hurt Disney and get them to cave in this battle that has been going on for a year. He has threatening to uh, pass a bill that would revoke the bill the, the the agreements that Disney has passed in recent weeks to try to protect its autonomy. Uh, he is offer he is suggesting that they might go after uh, Disney's uh, uh, utilities in the area as well and potentially sell them off to other private companies. He's threatening to tax Disney's vast properties around its its theme park. So he has laid out a whole host of more concrete ideas in addition to these sort of these trial balloons on the ones that are getting a lot of attention in the last 24 hours. Yeah, and you do raise a good point. What starts as a, seemingly a joke and a trial balloon has on occasion turned into a policy or a push at least. Um, Michael Steele, who has a, a podcast on MSNBC um, and a former Republican National Committee chairman, tweeted something that I thought was important. Um, he said, so you want to analyse putting a state prison next to Disney when families stop visiting in Disney's $75 billion impact, $5.8 billion tax revenue drop, its 75,000 employees face layoffs and 463,000 jobs are also imperiled. What would your analytics say cause to happen. WTF Dumbo. Steve, that's sort of punchy because there are economic costs to upsetting Disney. It's why they're so powerful. Absolutely. And they are the largest employer in Florida. There's been a sort of a symbiotic relationship between Florida and Disney that goes back since they first opened their theme parks here. And really, Florida's economy has grown with Disney. But Governor DeSantis has won a lot of political capital with this fight. It has made him one of the most popular Republicans in the country. And now we are starting to see potential rivals uh, starting to uh, criticize DeSantis over this as he grows in, in the Republican field. We saw Chris Christie just today uh, said he doesn't think this sounds very conservative. Former president, Vice President Mike Pence has criticized this. So all these Republicans who are a little gun-shy to attack Trump are now pivoting to DeSantis, and they have found Disney to be uh, a very fertile ground to raise questions about his leadership going forward. Yeah, there's a Trump campaign ad somewhere in that tweet, I think. Steve, great to have you with us. Thank you so much. Steve Contorno there in St. Petersburg, Florida. Okay, after the break, more on the crisis in Sudan. We'll get an on-the-ground assessment from security firm Global Guardian. That's next. Welcome back to First Move. Returning to Sudan now. And as smoke and gunfire fill the air over the capital, Khartoum, we're hearing that Germany is preparing for a possible evacuation operation. A spokesman telling CNN special forces are on standby for emergency situations. 
Also watching closely is the international security firm Global Guardian. It provides emergency services to clients in Sudan's largest cities and tourist destinations. The company, which has on-the-ground intelligence, provides personal security, emergency evacuations and medical aid. Global Guardian operates in over 140 nations, including Ukraine and in Afghanistan. And Dale Buckner is the CEO and joins us now. Dale, great to have you with us. I remember our conversations with Ukraine and Afghanistan and how vital it was to have your eyes on the ground. What's your assessment, first and foremost, of the security situation in Sudan today? Well, Julie, it's as you described. One, it's deteriorating. We're going towards day four. Uh, The airport is closed. Electricity in major cities is out. The water uh, construction site where they purify water has been struck, so clean water is now not available. Uh, Hospitals are closing. Medical support is evaporating. Ultimately, you have what you have in all these scenarios. You have the the transportation grid is now frozen. Uh, You have fighting on the streets. And ultimately, the civilians in all of these cases are now stuck in between two warring factions. I was going to ask you about that in particular, because we are talking about conflict between um, two well-armed military factions, but getting information on who's doing what, who controls what, who's where, um, is very difficult. Can you give us any sense of that at this stage, particularly when we're talking about perhaps airports, disabled roadblocks, I'm assuming, and road checks? What can you tell us? And I appreciate it's, it's difficult to get clarity at this stage. Yeah, even with the teams on the ground that are reporting what's happening to us every few hours, to your point, the airports are closed, the airspace is closed, there's no commercial private charter air capability whatsoever. To your point, both the SAF and the RSF have both stood up checkpoints, depending on what what terrain they hold. Uh, Ultimately, there will be a standstill, if you will, on the transportation grid. Uh, We're going into day four, we do believe, and this was just announced, we might see the, the second of, of two attempts at a ceasefire. We're hoping that this evening at 6 p.m. local that we will see a ceasefire. There will be an opportunity to move civilians out of the city centers at scale. Now, the first attempt that this failed, you saw this in Ukraine, you saw it in, in Kabul, Afghanistan. Typically, the first few attempts at this fail because the people at the lowest level do not actually get that message. And you can imagine that is the risk here, is that as you have forces on both sides deployed across the country, that at the lowest level, that communicate does not get to them, and hence the fighting continues. So there's real risk here, even with a formalized ceasefire, with that window of opportunity coming, that we could still see fighting. Do you know who is in control of, of the skies, because to your point, if there is, and we pray that this ceasefire does hold, if you're trying to extricate people, is land the only option? So right now, we do believe land is the option, the only option. We have executed three successful evacuations to Egypt to the north, uh, one successful evacuation to Eritrea to the southeast. Uh, Ultimately, right now, the Sudanese army does have an air capability, if you will. They do have aircraft up. The RSF does not have a capability, although they have recently secured some some military and air force assets. The question is, can they fly them? Can they maintain them? And that's still TBD. No one really knows if the RSF has that capability. Um, And as, as we look at it today, 
that truly the only option you have for freedom of movement is ground. But that is, as you can imagine, there have been bridges blown up. There are checkpoints on both sides. There are borders closing. This becomes very difficult. We're now going into day four. The first 48 hours, much as I, just as I spoke to you during the fall of Kabul and in the Ukraine, the first 48 hours is your greatest opportunity for freedom maneuver. And then every day after that, it gets tighter and tighter and tighter and more difficult. I mean, you mentioned the successful operations that you already carried out. I'm assuming that was in the, the early hours of, of when this conflict erupted. Are you in a situation now where you're preparing, waiting to, to remove further individuals? And, and who's there? Who, who are the clients that we're talking about? Is it corporations, members of NGOs? It's sort of difficult to see who remains or who would want to remain at this stage and, and, and who is still desperate to leave. Yeah, so there's four categories of clients that Global Guardian is currently serving. Oil and gas, consulting, nonprofits, and recently we've been, we've been uh, approached by multiple governments. In each case, if they're not Global Guardian clients, we, we kind of reserve all of our assets to, to that client base or that cohort first and foremost. And then as we have capacity, as much like when I talked to you about the Ukraine, we then open it up to other agencies, if you will. Uh, you can imagine those discussions in the fourth 48 hours are we need to move now. We need to move fast. This is the window of opportunity. Now that things are more difficult, again, as I've talked to you about in other crises, I might not get to be able to get to your people in the next three, four or five days or three weeks. It doesn't mean we can't get to them. It's just all about the conditions on the ground and where is the opportunity. So to your point, there are there are places outside of the major urban areas that we still can move. Uh, as you can imagine, where the fighting is at, this is now either closed up and or we're waiting for an opportunity to see what changes over the next days to weeks to months. I mean, part of what the um, damage and um sort of awful stories that we're hearing are from doctors, and that's directly to, to into CNN, that hospitals are being targeted. Dale, do you have any um, sort of evidence, knowledge, or intel about that specifically and, and what you're hearing? Yeah, so our, our teams on the ground have validated that open source intelligence that's being re reported in the open source news. Um, again, airports, the water source, hospitals, if you think about this, both the SAF and the RSF are fighting over this opportunity. They're fighting over what is the infrastructure of the country that if they quote unquote win, now they can control the population. So when you think about it, that's why they're going after government buildings. That's why they're going after military bases. That's why they're targeting transportation infrastructure. And that's ultimately why they're targeting food, water, and ultimately even medical care is a target because it becomes a control lever for whoever comes out on top of this conflict. Yeah, it's appalling. Um, Dale, I'm going to post this interview on social media later. If, if people are there and they actually get to see this, what's your best advice to yeah. Sudanese citizens that may be close by or, or involved in this? No question, whether you're, you're a citizen or you're tied to a firm, that number one, you have to be paying attention if you have connectivity to the to a radio, uh, to the internet, to a phone, if that's still working, wherever that is that you can get information. As I stated, we're targeting 6 p.m. local this evening. We are very hopeful 
that in the city centers where there is conflict, there will be a ceasefire. This will be the first of hopefully several successful ceasefires that allow the civilian population to, to be very direct, to get out of the way. Um, those windows of opportunity are very important. They have been successful in other conflict regions. And then if you're outside of those centers where there's not a lot of fighting, uh, you either can, can have, the, if you have the mobility, if you will, you have to make that move early in this conflict, move to another area that's out of the fighting zone, go to family members and or coordinate with your, your employer to see what they're recommending and to see if they can bring firms in like Global Guardian or they're coordinating with government forces. As you described, German forces might be on call. I would tell you that bringing in a foreign military at this point will be a very difficult call for the Germans. Um, and even if they do deploy, uh, there are, they're going to face the exact same infrastructure challenges uh, and roadblocks that we have today. And frankly, this, this timing of this will be really, really important. Mm. Dale, tied to this, um, we're just getting news into CNN that armed personnel, we don't know who, what side, have um, stormed the homes of NGO workers, we believe UN workers involved in particular. Would you expect this kind of thing? And again, it goes back to the conversation that we were saying about who specifically is being targeted and how they best protect themselves. Yeah, I think when you look at the two forces, the Sudanese army, the SAF, as it's called, they do have logistical capability. They can resupply themselves at some level, at least today. When you look at the RSF, they are, quote unquote, better trained, but they don't have a logistical train or support. So we've already seen at scale, the RSF primarily, they have been going after institutions and hubs where there is food, water, money, weapons, assets, because they just don't have a logistical train behind them, if you will. So when you look at the open source reporting, we've already seen Egyptian advisors taken. We've seen an assault of a Japanese diplomat. Um, the Kuwaiti embassy has been approached. Uh, diplomats from the US, the European Union, and the Japanese have all been either assaulted or approached. And then, of course, when you look at the forces on the ground from the UN, typically they're, these compounds the UN have set up are well-funded, they have a lot of resources, and that's why the UN is going to be targeted primarily by the SAF, the SF, RSF, but the Sudanese army at some point, if they become desperate, that, al that also could be a target for them. So this just, we, we would expect more of this, especially the longer it goes. If this goes for months, to years, then all of those assets are going to be targeted by both sides throughout the conflict. Dale, I have about 30 seconds very quickly. If, if again, individuals that work for these international organizations are watching, what's the advice? Do you, you hand over those assets, the wealth, the money, whatever it is that they're looking for? 100%. Look, uh, food, grain, radios, homes, infrastructure, much like a natural that it can all be replaced. Lives cannot be replaced. When you're approached, if it is overwhelming force, there really is not an option here. I would not advise those personnel or those organizations to fight. If there is a way to peacefully transition those assets and to peacefully get out of the way, which in many cases that will occur, uh, those are the discussions you want to have as a leader. And I, again, I will reiterate, watching for those ceasefire opportunities 
are your best opportunities to safely exit if you don't have either a military or an organization like a Global Guardian that's going to come in and be able to ha have the opportunity to move those people to a safe zone. Dale, great to have you on, as always. Great advice, and thank you for your insight. Dale Buckner there, the CEO of Global Guardian. Thank you. We're back after this. Stay with us. Hey Siri, say hello to India. Apple CEO Tim Cook was on hand in Mumbai to celebrate the opening of its first physical store in the nation. It's a major milestone for Apple in the world's second largest smartphone market. Vedekasud has more on the importance of the tech giant's expansion. Amit Chu and Chance Apple CEO Tim Cook opened the doors of the company's first physical store in India in Mumbai Tuesday. The tech giant, which is the world's second biggest smartphone maker, currently holds just a 6% market share in India. Until now, it had been selling its products through third-party sellers and through its online retail stores. Apple, which is the world's most valuable company, is looking to expand its operations and increase its retail share in India, which is seen as an emerging market with huge potential. After recent supply chain snags in mainland China, which accounts for a bulk of iPhone manufacturing, Apple has been looking to expand its phone production operations here in India. The company has significantly increased its Indian exports. iPhone shipments grew 65% over the previous year. Apple's top presence in India is a part of a larger trend that we are now seeing of companies diversifying their manufacturing away from China. According to Apple, the company's mobile apps business is supporting more than one million developer jobs in India. Apple will be opening its second retail store in the capital, New Delhi, on Thursday. Vedika Sood, CNN, New Delhi. And let's talk more about this. Dan Ives is Managing Director and Senior Equity Analyst at Wedgebush Securities, and he joins us now. Dan, you know what's remarkable to me, and I know this story is huge, is that they already have, what, a $6 billion business in India without having any retail presence at all. How quickly do you think this scales? Uh, I think it's going to scale quickly. I mean, we think mm -hmm. this could be up to 20 billion by 2025. And this is really oh. Apple. It's a strategic poker move. I mean, they're, they're doubling down on the Indian market. And this is something where I think it's the smart move at the right time, especially where they are, not just from the demand perspective, but production is more moves to India. I mean, they've got, what, in terms of competition, Samsung, uh, Vivo, Huawei. Where do they fit in terms of segment price point? Because it's an expensive device. Yeah, and I think that's been the historical issue in India. But I think more and more there's a groundswell that we're seeing around Apple's products. And I think going into the iPhone 15, we could see significant share from Samsung and some of the lower cost Chinese competitors. That's what Apple's going after. And for Cook... Being there, I think more and more trying to court, you know, in terms of government officials and others, they're taking a page at the China playbook in terms of laying the groundwork. I think India could be a massive market for Apple going forward. And it's super digital. I was just on a panel at the IMF talking about the um, sort of India stack, which is layers of digitization across the sphere. So it's quite fascinating to see this come at the same time. Um, but it's also an opportunity on production, too, to your point about the similar path that we saw them take in China. It's skin in the game. And I think ultimately, if you look what happened 
with that gut punch in December holiday season, the zero COVID shutdown in China, that was a straw that brought the camels back. More and more Apple looking at India, looking at Vietnam to diversify. And right now, I mean, on both sides, demand and supply looking at India. And I think this is going to be a key piece of that Apple puzzle going forward. Price target on Apple at this moment, Dan? 205 and you know, look, in my opinion, this will yet again be a $3 trillion mark cap this year, despite many yelling fire in a crowd theater. It's a rock of Gibraltar tech stock. <laughs> a rock of Gibraltar. Um, great to have you on. Dan Ice. you'll be back Thanks later on this me. week because we're going to talk Netflix and, um, and Twitter too. Fun and games, as Thank always. Thank you, Dan. Welcome back to First Move. U.S. stocks are up and running this Tuesday. Let's take a look. The major averages mostly higher. Let's call it that in early trade. Tech, of course, in a dominant position, up six-tenths of one percent. A positive investor reaction, perhaps, to China's stronger-than-expected GDP number, showing consumers there back in action well and truly post-lockdowns. The S&P 500 is up more than one percent over the past month, despite an array of economic uncertainties. Investors almost fully pricing into another Fed rate hike next month, even as economists worry about an upcoming recession and a pullback in bank lending. And bank earnings certainly front and centre today. Disappointment for Goldman Sachs investors. Its shares down some 2.7% after that revenue miss. In the meantime, Bank of America topping estimates on both the top and bottom lines, relatively unchanged in early trade. And finally... They say a picture tells a thousand words, but this one tells a story of just two letters, A and I. You're looking at an image that won the Sony World Photography Awards. The only problem is it was made using artificial intelligence. The artist behind it says he won't accept the prize money and entered the photo as an experiment to spark debate. Ouch. I can't wait till an AI version of me replaces me and I'll just watch from the beach. That's it for the show. I'm kidding. If you've missed any of our interviews today, they will be on my Twitter and Instagram pages. Search for at CNN. Connect the World is up next and the real me will see you tomorrow. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.